Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Well, today wraps up a four-part series on prayer. Um, my goal all along in this series on why we pray has been to encourage us, not so much urging us to pray more, but to step back and look at why we actually pray. It's a bit like... Um, if you know the value of diet, good diet and exercise, you're probably more likely, not guaranteed, but probably more likely to pay attention to your diet and to your exercise because you understand how valuable it is. That's been my goal in this series on why we pray. And look, let me just say at, at right up front from the start, Sometimes we look at people who are upfront and who preach to us as if they've got it all together. Uh, after all, they're bringing the word of God to us and they're, they're teaching and they should be able to do it with some kind of authority. And that is all true, except that we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. He's the only one that's got it all together. So when it comes to prayer... I'm like a construction zone. God is still at work in me. And I think we're all construction zones. And the Lord is putting us together. He's piecing us together into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just, for the sake of those who weren't here, for, for haven't been here for the whole series, just very quickly look at wh what brought us to today. Today is we pray because we have the Holy Spirit. But why is that? Well, first of all, the first week we looked at the fact that we pray because God is a speaking God. He spoke the world into being. The Spirit of God was hovering over the deep and God said. He's a speaking God. Adam walked in the garden with the Lord and they spoke together. But when sin entered into the world that interrupted that fellowship, that communion with God. One of the primary casualties has been prayer. But God ever afterwards has kept reaching out to us, speaking to us, sending prophets, apostles, writing the scriptures, speaking, communicating to us. Secondly, we saw that as Christians we pray because we are born again sons and daughters of God. When we're born again, we become children of God, adopted into the household of faith. He is our loving, heavenly Father. We can draw near to him. 
Last time we saw that we pray because God is a sovereign God. Why would you pray to a God who is powerless? It is because God is able to do more than we ask or imagine that we pray to him. He's a sovereign God. And today I want to look at the vital link between the Holy Spirit and prayer. We pray because we have the Spirit of God. It's really an extension of the last sermon. And, and so before I begin, I want to make a clarification about something I said in the last sermon. I criticise that popular saying, prayer changes things. I didn't mean not to pray. I've received a little bit of feedback that some people were thinking I was saying when I said that, well, there's no point praying because prayer doesn't change anything. If you heard me say that, you heard me wrongly. The reason I criticise the saying is because I don't think it's a very helpful way of putting it because it's open to misunderstanding. I've heard Christians say, God can't change anything until we pray. Now that is a very wrong-headed idea. As if God's got his hands tied behind his back until we release them through prayer. There's a little deposit of truth, a little measure of truth in that. But God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. That's why we pray. It's not because he's powerless until we pray. But someone who believes that God is powerless until we pray would still say prayer changes things. It's open to misunderstanding. I think a far better way of putting it is that because God changes things, we pray. That's why we come to God in prayer. That's what I was getting at when I said that. Now, having said that, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we are so grateful that you are able to help us. We draw near to you in the confidence, O oh, you who hear prayer. Help me to declare your word as I should. Help us to hear your word as we need to hear it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Many people have noted that the final words someone speaks are often significant because they're important, they're near the end of their life, and they often say things that are very revealing. Just think of Jesus' last words. But it's not always the case, because apparently Ned Kelly's last words before he was hanged were, such is life. It's equivalent, if you like, to that French saying, c'est la vie, what will be, will be. Uh, that's life. Life's like that. Some modern variants of that, uh, that's the way it goes, that's the way the ball bounces, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And tragically, one of my nephews who took his own life had that printed up on a T-shirt. Life's like that. And it's a fairly bleak philosophy of life, isn't it? You die, that's it. You can't do much about it. Such is life. 
Today's reading from John 15 is one section of extended teaching from John chapters 13 through to 17 that Jesus spoke on the eve of his crucifixion when he uttered those final words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So we need to bear this in mind. 13 through to 17 is the context for that section that Jason read out to us. So right at the beginning of John 13, we, we read these words. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and washed his disciples' feet. That's the context in which we read about these words on prayer. So bearing in mind that full range of things that happened in the upper room that night, from Jesus washing the disciples' feet, celebrating the Passover with them, Judas betraying him and going out and it was night, to teaching them about prayer and the coming of the Holy Spirit as another comforter or counsellor to be with them, this is where Jesus made his three amazing statements about prayer. Chapter 14 and verse 14. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Chapter 16, verse 23. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And here in the reading we had this morning, 15 verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Those are very definite statements, aren't they? Comprehensive, all-inclusive statements. Whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Whatever you ask in my name, anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, these words have often been misunderstood and, and taken by people in, in the wrong way and used like a mantra, if you like, that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, you just got to believe it, you'll receive it. And what is at the motivation of that is often self-centeredness. Lord, give me a Maserati. Or, Lord, you're... and we want things for ourselves. Is that a valid application of what Jesus is saying? That's what I want us to focus on today. I'm going to have two main points only, not three, two main points, and I want to zero in on verse 7, but in the context of 13 to 17. If we're to really understand the gospel, the gospel isn't a lucky charm to give us what we want from God. It's quite the reverse. 
It's God's grace and mercy at work to give God what he desires from us. The gospel is how God does what he wants to change us to be like his son through our union with his son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. So the two points I want us to concentrate on are simply this. The Holy Spirit makes us real prayers, real people who pray. And the Holy Spirit makes our prayers real. The Holy Spirit makes us real prayers and the Holy Spirit makes our prayers real. There is a difference. Let's look at the first one. The Holy Spirit makes us real prayers. Now that's why John 15, 7 is so important. According to Jesus, prayer that exhibits real faith, prayer that is genuinely in his name, comes from those who remain in Christ by allowing his words to remain in them. Look again at, at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's a qualification, isn't there? When we remain in Christ, in union with him, and the words that he speaks in in his word remain in us, then what we ask is done for us. The whole of this upper room discourse of Jesus from chapters 13 to 17 centres on how that can be. How will his words remain in his people after he leaves them on earth and ascends to his Father in heaven? After all, I can't actually go to Jesus and ask him about his miracles and what he did and more information. He's at the Father's right hand. As he said in chapter 14 and again in chapter 16, the answer is going to come through the Holy Spirit. He says things like this, and I've taken a selection of verses from 14 and, and 16 here. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The helper, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will lead you into all the truth. The valuable, crucial, vital role of the Holy Spirit. Notice that this is all future tense. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will teach you. He will lead you. It's all future. But it's future related to an interim time, the time between when Jesus departs and goes to heaven and when he sends another comforter 50 days after his crucifixion. Jesus is speaking explicitly here to the remaining 11 disciples, his apostles, He's not just speaking vaguely to his followers in general and certainly not directly to you and me today. The Spirit can't bring to our mind things that Jesus spoke to us during his earthly ministry. We weren't there. His words belong to a unique, 
moment in history. Jesus' upper room discourse is all about that once-for-all transition into the post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, New Testament era of the church in which we are now. So that doesn't mean, though, that Jesus' words have no relevance for us. They have huge relevance. But not just by reading a verse and taking it out of its context and applying it directly to us. I want to just give you a clear example of that. Recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets. This is Peter speaking in 2 Peter 3, verse 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Through your apostles. Chapter 3, verse 2. The Holy Spirit brought to remembrance for the apostles all the church needed to know of God's sovereign purposes of grace for his kingdom until Jesus comes again in glory and they wrote the New Testament. They wrote it down. He gave... New Testament apostles and prophets who would write the scriptures. Jesus had said this would be the Spirit's ministry through the apostles. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you so that, so that you will speak what is yet to come. I can't do that today. Other than by telling you what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write in the New Testament. So it's crucial to see how important the Holy Spirit's ministry is for helping all followers of Jesus to remain in Christ and have his words remain in them. The Lord Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to help the apostles and prophets write the New Testament. So the church everywhere, ever after, will have access to his commands and teachings and therefore know how to love him and remain in him. The coming of the Spirit would change everything for the church forever. It's a bit like the invention of the printing press. Once the printing press came, no longer were we tied to having to manually write things out, copy by copy by copy, but mass printing of things was possible, mass circulation, multiple copies, all exactly the same, are able to be distributed all over. Now, whether that's digitally these days or in print like we've got in our Bibles, the principle is the same. The printing press changed the world forever. And the coming of the Holy Spirit changed the church forever. Through the coming of the Spirit, we have Scripture our New Testament scriptures inspired by eyewitnesses who saw those things or reliable men taught by them and that is recorded for us in the Bible. So the words of Jesus can remain in us because we weren't there to hear them. But we have access to them. 
So before we leap straight into thinking about how Jesus' words apply to us, we need to think about how we got those scriptures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking through apostles and prophets. Think of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Where would we be without the words of the Gospels? Think of Peter and Paul. When we grasp that, verses 5 and 6 here take on new meaning. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Now in that immediate context, who was Jesus speaking to? The 11. There was one missing. There had been 12. Who had not remained with Jesus to hear his words and allow his words to remain in him? Judas, who betrayed him. What did Judas do? He went out and hanged himself. He was cut off, thrown away. It's like a, a mini little movie trailer to picture for us what it will be like on the day of judgment. What, those who remained in Jesus and who allowed his word to remain in them were able to write the scriptures preach in his name, multiply the message of the good news. But the one who didn't do that was cut off, thrown away. And that is what it's going to be like for the whole world if we don't allow the words of Christ to remain in us. What happened to Judas is like that movie trailer warning us. Now let's ask another question. What is the much fruit the 11 disciples would bear and the greater works that they would do if they remained in Jesus that he told them about here? Well, they would become fishers of men by preaching and teaching the gospel in his name. How did they do that? by preaching the good news from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts, Acts 1.8. And how did they do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. After the Spirit came, they proclaimed to everyone everywhere that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven as Lord and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So repent and believe the good news. They healed a beggar lame from birth at the temple while they were on their way to pray. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. They counted it all joy to suffer for the name of their Saviour. They prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel, and the place where they were was shaken again by God. They were humble enough to admit that they needed to keep on learning and growing. 
learning that the Gentiles also were part of God's plan for the world. And they went, wow, God has also given the Gentiles repentance to life. There was humility to keep learning. And they wrote the New Testament to instruct faithful, to instruct the church forever in the words of truth. Clearly, this was the fruit, the effects, the results of the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. They weren't perfect. Peter and John uh, and, and Paul behaved inconsistently at times with the gospel. A couple, a couple of times we read about that. The New Testament is honest about it. But God was still with them. And isn't it true today? Look. Who among us is perfect? Paul says, not that I have already obtained all these things, but forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I, I press on for that onward, upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've got the words of Jesus here in the scriptures to shape and guide us in our praying. We don't know what we ought to pray for until we understand we're to pray according to the will of God, which is revealed in the scriptures, and not ask for our own self-centered things. The Lord knows we need many things. Your heavenly Father knows those things. But if, if we're asking for bread, he's not going to give us a snake. We can trust our Father. And, and we are guided by the scriptures in what we are to pray for. And without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have this book. We wouldn't have God's words to direct us in our praying and show us the truth and reveal Jesus to us. So let's not miss the point here. The Holy Spirit is intimately connected with both prayer and God's word, because he's the author of both. The Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, including prayer. The Spirit shows us through the word what we are to pray for. The apostles understood this, and they understood it because of this teaching that Jesus gave them in John chapters 13 to 17. So much so that in Acts 6, when there was a neglect of the Greek-speaking widows because the Hebrew-speaking widows were being favoured in the distribution of food, and there's a bit of a confuffle in the church about it, when they came together, listen to what they said. They called, the apostles called the church together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. How did they know that? Because of what Jesus had taught them in the upper room. He'd been teaching. He said, 
I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send the Comforter and he will be with you. He will take my words. He will make them known to you. And they knew from that discourse and the actions that Jesus sealed for them when he prayed for them, that they were to devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word and not get sidetracked into other things. Then we wouldn't have had the scriptures. Think of what Jesus prayed for them in John 17. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted those words. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe, that by that name you gave me, they would speak in my name. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, Judas. I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, the eleven, might ha have the full measure of my joy within them, the Holy Spirit. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. That's the meaning of the term apostle, sent one. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of Jesus' prayer would be apostles and prophets who proclaimed the good news of God and wrote gospels and letters full of Jesus' words so we can love the Lord too and remain in him and pray in accordance with his word. We would not have the New Testament without God's Spirit. We would not have the author of Jesus' words or God's power living in us. We would not be real prayers. It was the Holy Spirit's work to give us an inspired Bible and it is his continuing work to make us real prayers. You have the words of Christ. But do you pray them? Do we allow these words to remain in us and shape our praying? So that we can pray in alignment with God's sovereign purposes instead of being steered off like a bowling ball with a bias towards ourselves and our own wants and pleasures. Are you a real prayer? Now, let's shift our focus to that second point. It's the work of the Spirit to make our prayers real. We go full circle back to the first sermon in the series. We pray because God is a speaking God, and he has spoken most fully to us through his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And we read, mark, learn and inwardly digest everything about him and his words in the Bible. And we pray them back to him. 
Just as it took the Holy Spirit to give the Bible to the church, so it still takes the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the Bible, understand those words of Jesus, and to pray them. We need the help of the Spirit. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does that involve? It involves praying in the Spirit. What is praying in the Spirit? Ephesians 6.18, right at the end of the Christian armour, says this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Notice it says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. To pray in the Spirit is not the experience of speaking in tongues, as some claim. If that was true, we should only ever pray in tongues, never in English. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. How can that be, praying in tongues? Rather, to pray in the Spirit on all occasions means we pray with the enabling of God's Spirit, the author of true prayer. Listen to the words of Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Holy Spirit intercedes himself for us through wordless groans. The Spirit intercedes for God's children in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit is our helper in prayer. It means we pray in alignment with the Spirit-inspired words of Christ, doing so with the help of the Spirit who inspired them in the first place. We allow those words that reveal God's sovereign purposes, words that set us free to love and serve and sacrifice and pray, to invade our minds and our hearts and dwell in us richly. And when we're not sure what to pray, we say, Lord, show us. And the Holy Spirit undertakes for us. Let me describe to you what I believe prayer in the Spirit is. It's praying as Jesus taught us for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's in alignment. The spirit who inspired the word told us that. It's praying for the Lord of the harvest to raise up more labourers for the harvest field because Jesus told us to do that. It is praying in our weakness, depending on God's great strength, as Paul showed us. I'd rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ might remain on me than boast in my strengths. It is to pray for others, humbly inviting the Holy Spirit to show us what we can do to serve them by serving others, 
Love your neighbour as yourself. It's to pour out our concerns to him, assured that our Heavenly Father loves us and will not give us a snake if we ask him for bread. To pray in the Spirit is God-honouring, kingdom-centric praying. It is prayer that's prompted and guided by the Holy Spirit according to the mind and will of God, not our own thinking. What might seem logical to us might not be the will of God. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it are the ways of death. It is prayer that takes the word of God seriously. Think of Daniel. In the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit was even poured out on the church, Daniel knew enough to know from the book of Jeremiah that the 70 years were just about up for the time when God would return his people. So what did he do? He prayed three times a day, and he opened his windows and he prayed towards Jerusalem, Lord, restore your people. And the Lord answered his prayers. It is devoting ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, as Paul urged the Colossians. It's being humble enough to know that when we're not sure what God's will is, we ask him. We ask him to shine his light on our path and make it plain to us. Show us your way, Lord. And we search the scriptures and we're guided by the Holy Spirit. Christ didn't die so we can pray to make a lot of money and live to please ourselves. He died so we can be filled with the Spirit and live and learn and love and serve our Heavenly Father like Adam and Eve at the beginning in creation. He died to wash us from our sins, adopt us into God's family, teach us to live in joyful relationship with God as our Heavenly Father, just as Jesus did when he was on earth, showing us glimpses of heaven. These words from the Father and the Son by the Spirit are to remain in us, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they are to guide and shape our prayer life. There are promises to pray in faith, commands to obey in love. And for it all, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Someone once said, the Bible is the only book whose author is present at every reading. So invite his help. When you're reading the scriptures, say, Lord, help me to understand your word. And then turn the scriptures into prayer. Pray the promises of God. Claim them for your own life. Claim them for others. Be guided by the spirit. The spirit who authored the word wants to help you remain in the word and to align you with his word. So what is true of the Bible is true of prayer. God's Spirit is the author of both. And we don't know how to pray as we should, so we ask him and he helps us. The love of God is shared abroad in our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The words of God come alive to us 
by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit to make the Word of God a living Word in our hearts and lives. We struggle to know if we're a true child of God. So the Holy Spirit comes and he's in our hearts as a witness to say, you are my child. The witness, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the child of God. And we say, Abba, Father. It's the working of the Spirit. We often confine the, the working or think of the working of the Spirit as basically associated with the miraculous. But the Holy Spirit's very much involved in the mundane, the day-to-day -day of daily living. Have you experienced things like this? Do you know the convincing and converting and sanctifying work of the Spirit bringing home to you to your heart, the truth of the Bible, and you're reading the word, and all of a sudden it's like lights go on. You say, whoa, I've never seen that before. That's the working of the Spirit. Have you been convinced of your sin and come to Christ and his cross for forgiveness and cleansing? You might be reading the Bible. I've heard of people who have been, they think they have been Christians, and they're reading scripture, and it's like God just takes the, the, the veil from their heart and the wool from their eyes and they go, wow, I don't think I've ever been born again. I don't know that I really do love Christ. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. We need that working. Do you experience the Holy Spirit realigning your mind and your attitudes with Christ's giving you a fresh start after fresh start in your construction site. This is the much fruit that shows you are Jesus' disciple today. Just as we could see it in the lives of the apostles by how they lived, so too when the Spirit's at work in us, we start to see our lives aligning with God's purposes. And we start to see change and we go, wow, God, you are so good. It could come through singing a song. You sing a song just like Chris shared before and, and it's like tears come to your eyes and the Holy Spirit is ministering to you, showing you the hope of the gospel, opening your heart, opening your eyes. This is John 15, 7 in action. If you remain in me, my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. When his words remain in us, what we wish will be what God wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on that cross to bear the punishment of our sins. And you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit to wash our hearts clean through rebirth and to take up residence in us, the author of the book dwelling in us, revealing to us the meaning 
of the words. Thank you, Father. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who have different gifts from us, gifts of the Holy Spirit to help the body to grow and to learn and to build itself up in love. Will you please encourage us, Lord, to listen to you, to listen to your words. Forgive us for separating the leading and teaching of the Spirit from the Bible. Forgive us when we've thought that those two things are often separated things. Father, your Spirit will never lead us contrary to the Bible. And although not every detail of what you intend for us in our lives is revealed in the Bible, we know that the author will be with us and to guide us according to the principles of the Bible, to teach us so that your words remain in us, so that what we ask will honour your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. And Father, in your grace, you bear with us. You know our immaturity. You understand when we are self-centred and we ask for things that perhaps are not really in alignment with your purposes. And sometimes, Lord, you graciously give us some of those requests as well, like icing on the cake. But Lord, deliver us from self-centredness. Deliver us from a prayer life that wants things from you all the time. Give me this, give me that, like a little child. Father, we pray rather that what you will give us will be maturity, Christ-likeness, kingdom hearts, a desire to love our neighbour as ourself, a desire to serve and to, and, and to bless others in the kingdom of God, boldness to open our mouth so that we can proclaim Christ. Will you give us these things, Lord? We know they're in alignment with your will. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Teach us how to live like this, Lord. Lest we live shriveled, shrunken, self-centred lives, asking you for things that really are about pleasing ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to shrink the world to our own desires. Rather, Lord, grow us up into thinking, how can we serve you? How can you use us to bless the world? Will you make us real prayers and make our prayers real? For Jesus' sake. Amen.